welcome back once again to another Coffee and Heroes podcast. We are back with our weekly review show. We're going to be going over the titles that were released on the 30th of June 2021. So tons of great stuff to get through as always. So your host for this podcast once again is Alan, owner and operator of Coffee and Heroes in Belfast. And I'm delighted to be joined as ever by Mr. Keith Miller who is not in Belfast this evening. How are you sir? I am very well, thank you, very well. No, I am down in uh, County Meath, uh, just uh, bombed down here after the weekend just to get clear of Belfast over the over the 12th, the 12th holidays, uh, the marching season. Um, so just decided to just decided to escape, uh, given the, the location of, of my apartment, so 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 close to the centre of all that marching. Um, only so many lamb big drums you can hear. Yeah, you were a wise man. We had neighbours who were banging those drums till well after midnight last night. It was uh, not pleasant, to be honest. I don't get involved in all that stuff every year. I was The store was closed on Monday there, which was the 12th, and I did not leave the house. <laughs> so I got caught up on some, some comics, got caught up on some TV uh and so forth but yeah i was very much spending the day indoors to be honest but we were back in the store today we're recording this on tuesday the 13th of july just a heads up for anybody listening to this a little bit of a delay with comics this week again due to our glorious holidays over the 12th and a lack of uh, postal services shall we say so hopefully we'll have everything in tomorrow ready for thursday but you're not here to hear about all of that you're here to hear about comics and also a little bit of the news as well so yeah you were saying you were at stendhal festival and keith how, how was that you know i believe you had the responsibility of helping to usher in the the first live music in, in northern ireland for quite some time yeah that's correct so uh, stendhal festival it's a festival that i'm uh, very very deeply involved in as part of the core team uh, have been for many years uh, wasn't able to run last year because of uh, coronavirus um, last ran in 2019 and uh, it's the largest uh, outdoor camping music festival in northern ireland um, and it was great uh, that we were able to run with a slightly reduced capacity of uh, of about 2,500 this year. So uh, so yeah, that was the first first uh, live music that was allowed in Northern Ireland in 16 months. It was an absolute pleasure to be part of. I had tears in my eyes whenever I went down the field uh, and heard heard music live uh, there for the first time in uh, and, and, and such a long time. It was really really phenomenal. Great. Great team of people to work alongside, uh, as always, but uh, very, very tired by the time it's it's finished. Um, and you can hear my voice is probably still a bit croaky from uh, from all the, the chatting and meeting and greeting of artists and uh, whooping and hollering at bands. And a few beverages consumed, I'm sure, as well. Quite. Quite. Yes. <laughs> Understandable so, uh, why you've stayed down in County Meath for a few days and uh, a little bit of uh, yeah, yeah. R&R in between working, of course. Uh, a wee bit. I was able to take had Monday off. I was able to take Tuesday off, and uh, we're already getting uh, getting prepped for the the second outing of Stendhal Festival in August, the second weekend of August. So looking forward to that as well. Uh, if you're looking for tickets, just get on the StendhalFestival.com website for the August the August tickets because after the success of this weekend, they will go quickly. Yeah, keep an eye out for that if you fancy a good bit of live music then and uh, let's be honest who doesn't fancy live music at the moment so but yeah when it comes to this week you know we, we've had a little look around the the interwebs around the the news and picked out a few bits and pieces that caught our eye just to have a quick chat about as well so 
it, it always feels like this news comes out just as we release a previews podcast but there were a couple of a comic announcements we've seen and i'm sure there'll be some more news about these uh once we get the next previews book but there is a, a marvel event coming up soon which is called the death of dr strange now this is going to be a five issue miniseries from writer jed mckay and artist lee garbay we we chatted about it a little bit on the previews pod but the new information that's coming out is now we're starting to get a series of tie-in issues uh which interestingly is bringing in strange academy understandably enough given that he is the dean of strange academy but i also see there's a little bit of an avengers tie-in here as well so uh we're, we're gonna be this looks like they are actually killing off dr strange although as ever in comics no one ever really dies do they mm, who's to know who's to know but yeah so as you say it's a five issue main series um and i really got into jed mckay uh stephen has uh, from the shop has chatted about him quite a lot but uh the the stuff that he's doing for the the infinite destinies annuals um really really good really enjoyable um the captain america one certainly was or the airman one certainly was phenomenal um so it sort of put me onto black cat a little bit but yeah as you say uh, there's going to be an avengers uh, death of doctor strange avengers one shot by alex packnadel and ryan bodenheim uh, apparently we'll see or as many series face off against a rampaging new juggernaut can they prevent the unstoppable being from destroying Manhattan or do they like the magical expertise needed for a final answer? And as you say then, Strange Academy presents Doc Death of Doctor Strange number one. It's got a young Mike Del Mondo and it finds the Academy shut down due to the Sorcerer Supreme's death. Makes sense since he's the, uh, the principal. And uh, the Enchantress and Eric and Alvia are involved there. So that all sounds, all sounds interesting and it looks like they're not getting too carried away with the tie-ins, which is good. Always a good thing. I mean, a couple of tie-ins is always a good thing, as you say. But once you hit Keenan Black level amount of tie-ins, it's uh, it's time to go home. But as well as that, there was the news from Marvel that uh, John Ridley, who is taking over Black Panther from Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, is, it was due to debut on the 4th of August. Juan Cabal was on Art Duties. We're big fans of Juan Cabal. Did the art for Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Man, for example. But it's been pushed back from August 4th to November 3rd. Now, that is quite the, quite the delay. And... Interestingly, Marvel revealed the decision to delay it in a letter sent directly to retailers, but no reason given for the delay, so, hmm, wonder what's going on there. Yeah, hard to say. I mean, John Ridley seems to be doing a lot in comics recently, um, you know, so it could be that. But, you know, it's it's better than a series being delayed that amount of time between issues. It's far better, I think, that it's delayed release of the first issue rather than between issue one and two or issue two and three you know that sort of way um yeah i wholeheartedly agree with that I, i'd always rather just wait for the issue one to come out and then as you say come out more consistently rather than here's issue one here's issue two uh it's going to be four months before the next issue it's there, there's been a couple of titles like that in recent times certainly doomsday clock was a was a perfect example i remember the jj abrams spider-man was a little bit like that as well and it can be frustrating when you're, you're you're not getting that consistency of you know titles being released it it puts you off them to be honest and you you tend to see pre-order norm numbers drop as a result so i think that's probably the right move there delaying it until it's good to go a number of issues are in the can and they won't have delays going forward so but uh, I see you wanted to talk a little bit. There's, there's some rumors around your favorite web crawler at the moment. Yeah, I've been seeing some some uh, hints that Marvel have been dropping that that Peter Parker Spider Man may not be long of this world. Uh, you always have to take these things with a with a pinch of salt. But there's been teasers that have come from images that Marvel have put up on social media, along with some fairly 
mysterious captions uh, event called Spider-Man Beyond. Uh, it all looks quite uh, quite ominous for Peter. He, there's an Arthur Adams cover with him laid out on a, a hospital ICU bed with, with Mary Jane sort of beside him, him with a, with a costume torn open. And uh, there's a, a web line connecting the bed to the top of the, the top of the cover and it's, it's been torn down to its final thread. So he's hanging on by a thread there. Um, says when we start building, I think it's uh, Nick Lowe, the editor, Marvel editor, has said when we started building Beyond, we knew we had to pull out all the stops from the artistic side, began by making sure Patrick Gleason was with us from the get-go as a writer and an artist um, because of his recent, you know, Spider-Man covers um, and all that. And uh, Spider-Man Beyond is also bringing Sarah, Sarah Pacelli to the Spider-Man universe for the first time. Um, just one of a highlight of one, just one highlight of a, an, an impressive creative team that has uh, apparently has fans excited. So, just yeah, just interesting stuff. Yeah, the speculators will be out in force. I'm sure. I mean, I I personally don't think they'll kill off Peter Parker. It's just my opinion, but you know, this is the tenth anniversary of Miles Morales. So I can understand Miles maybe being handed the the mantle, so to speak. And then, of course, they're bringing Ben Riley in and that sort of thing. But I think, you know, you had the death of Spider-Man a decade ago, obviously, when, when Miles Morales was brought in. I think with a third Tom Holland, Peter Parker, Spider-Man movie coming out soon. I Again, it's it's just speculation as in, in yeah. all people's part. But I don't think they'll kill him off. I could maybe see a... You know, think of maybe Nightfall, where Bruce Wayne was, you know, had his back broken and was physically unable to do the job. So I, I think it'll be something personally. I think it'll be something more along those lines. But time oh. will tell. Uh, just a couple of other comic things actually just uh, hit the interwebs today. So they did, or in the last day or so. But there's uh, Mark Miller has a new comic book coming out soon. This is part of his deal with Netflix. And this is going to be a title called King of Spies. Now, it's going to be an original series for Netflix, but it's going to begin life as a graphic novel first. So, again, playing around a little bit here with the uh, the comic book releasing format. This this has hints, or more than hints, I would say, of Brubaker and Phillips and how they do Reckless, you know, complete graphic novels at a time. But uh, this one is... Described as follows, in King of Spies, Britain's greatest secret agent faces his deadliest enemy yet, his own mortality. Diagnosed with a brain tumour and six months to live, the, the retired Sir Roland Keane looks around at the world he's saved so many times and feels he can't leave us in such a mess. There's greed and corruption at every level, untouchable despots. He was forbidden to go near and a system he just doesn't believe in anymore. He wants to use his remaining time to make a difference with his particular set of skills. Nice use of words there. And mm-hmm. repair the damage he did in his private life at the same time. Now, they interestingly, they haven't announced an artist for this. They did release a couple of pieces of art uh, to accompany the announcement. One by an artist called Osgur Yildrum, who's worked on Loki before. And the second one by Mark Chiarello from Wolverine. But Mark Miller basically said there was going to be a superstar artist chosen from the comic book world. So we shall see. Uh, there was one piece of art there that just... Gave off more than hints of Pierce Brosnan. So I wonder if that's the kind of uh, <laughs> casting they'd be looking at. I mean, come on. If you're going to have the King of Spies, why not have it be a former James Bond? So I thought that sounded pretty interesting. And then just one more was uh, only announced about an hour ago, actually, which is uh, a new DC title by Matthew Rosenberg. So he has come across the DC, obviously done stellar work at Marvel in the last few years. I don't think he's exclusive to DC. I think he's writing stuff for both for both companies. But he's got a new one coming out called Task Force Z, which uh, is 
a zombified version of the Suicide Squad about to take over Gotham. Uh, it's written by Matthew Rosenberg, art by Eddie Barrows and Iber Ferreira, and it has Red Hood leading an army of undead Arkham Asylum inmates, which sounds really, really interesting. And again, it's picking up from the events from Batman and this infamous A-Day attack that so much of the Batman titles are based around. And, and again, we go back to it. I'm just loving how all the titles are joining together at the moment. All the threads are being pulled together. And I wonder how much of that goes down to Mr. Joshua Williamson, you know, pulling the strings behind the scenes. So mm. it's great to see. So interconnected at DC at the moment. It's it's great to see. Which is quite ironic, considering that's exactly the opposite of what they were angling for. <laughs> well, it is and it isn't, I suppose, because with Infinite Frontier, it was always about how every story matters. So you can mm. tie it all together. So, but true, yeah, true, true. I think that's pretty cool. But a couple of bits and pieces on the TV movie side of things. We... I'll, I'll let you announce this one since this has been one of your titles of the year. Go on, give us some news on a certain AWA Studios title. Ah, uh, yeah, absolutely over the moon that Warner Brothers have won an auction for Chariot, um, which is the book that I think has been on my either pick of the week or honorable mentions for the past five months um, from AWA. It's the uh, synth wave thriller. Um, the uh, the story is by Brian Edward Hill and Priscilla Petridis and. Uh, it's a sense we have sci-fi thriller. Chariot was a Cold War, Cold War era secret government project which provided a star agent with a weapon unlike any other in the form of a state-of-the-art sports car. It sank into the ocean decades ago, the agent along with it, and a petty criminal looking to reform his life has stumbled upon it, uh, and the agent's conscious, which is now an AI controlling it, and uh, the, the adventure that they get into. But Warner Brothers has won that auction. It's a feature pitch package that has Top Gun Maverick Helmer Joseph Kaczynski directing the adaptation of the graphic novel um, recently published by AWA, um, being scripted uh, by Julianne Mioha, uh, whose recent credits include Jack Ryan and The Flash. Um, and uh, it looks like a, well, with, I mean, guess with Kaczynski's background in Tron Legacy and the, uh, I guess, the, the AI side of, uh, the AI side of, of, of Chariot, you know, if it could be really good, and if it can get Top Gun right, you'll have the action side of it right. I'm quite sure. So this could be this could be really interesting. It's also AWA's first project that's been greenlit for for TV, and I certainly hope not the last. Yeah, we've spoken about that before about how many of the AWA titles just seem ready made for feature adaptations, and they recently set up their own movie studios as well, or their own production company to to handle the movie side of things. So I think this will definitely be the first of many, and and why not? You know, it's it, this just is dripping in, you know, movie potential, I think, and obviously appeals to the nostalgia kids in, in both of us, I would say. So, but yeah, Definitely. strong director as well, as you say, with him having worked on Tron uh, Legacy and so forth as well. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's apparently been, been sold as a, a thriller with two strong roles for two A list actors. So obviously that would be the character that whoever plays Jim and whoever plays Jillian, the the AI, and that'll be that'll, that'll be the two two A lists, I guess. Um, start to start start to do some some dream casting, I guess. Yeah, it's uh, it it did amuse me though when I saw the news break because obviously I'm part of various comic groups and so forth, and of course all the speculators read not really comic fans all the speculators were essentially you know jumping over each other in search of and you know saying like oh yeah i had this order and never turned up and all kinds of excuses but yeah we we've been on this from the start you know we we, we don't like to toot our own horns so much but you know something is killing the children 
chariot department of truth you know we recommend some good stuff for speculators so maybe spread the word on this podcast uh then what else we got this week tv movie wise so as i say we were uh we were closed yesterday but vicky and i used that as an opportunity to get caught up on loki we were two episodes behind so we watched episode four and five back to back which you know when when episode five ended vicky just turned to me and was like of course they ended there and uh, i was able to comfort her knowing that it was only two days she had to wait rather than a week so uh, I had a very similar reaction. I was like, no, I wanted more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've I've enjoyed Loki to a degree, but I found that, you know, relatively, this is probably going to sound like I'm I'm slating it, but I'm really not. But I found it relatively disposable at the start. I, I thought it got by on the star part of Hiddleston, of, you know, Owen Wilson and so forth and their relationship. But I, in those two episodes, I thought it picked up massively. And, you know, I was, I had a very similar reaction when episode five ended, like, God damn it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, really enjoying that. But we, we, we now have to choose. We're recording this on a Tuesday, on a Wednesday. Do we go see Black Widow in the cinema or do we watch the Loki finale? Well, I mean, that's the choice we're trying to make down in Meath as well. <laughs> um, you know, I don't know. Be all right. Either way. Yeah. Why not both? Why not both? Yes. We shall see. <laughs> pick, your, pick your time at the cinema correctly and you can do both. Absolutely. Um, what are your uh, what are your thoughts? What are you anticipating in the finale of uh, of Loki? I'm anticipating a lot of disappointment for so many people. There's so many theories going around with, you know, obviously what they were approaching at the end. You know, are we going to get a little bit of a a look into future movies? You know, obviously we're. I think the most common theory seems to be a, a possible introduction to Kang, uh, Kang the Conqueror, who of course has been confirmed as the villain for Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. There's mm. a few theories going around about the Fantastic Four and this being Doctor Doom's castle. And Don't see it. I am sorry. They nope. are not, not... Not to say that they would be wasting it, but they would be wasting it by introducing the Fantastic Four in a TV show. Sorry, not going to happen. Yep. Watch me with egg on my face tomorrow night when it does happen. Uh, what about yourself? Any any theories stand out for you? Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of um, I guess Easter eggs in that in that last episode that point in the direction of Kang, uh, and they weren't some of them were quite subtle. Um, I'll not, yeah, there's probably no point in going going into them, but there there seems to be a lot that was that was subtly pointing in the direction of. Of the introduction of Kang, plus you know Kang is the is the conqueror of time, and this is very time based, and so forth and so on. So that's that's what I would like to see. I don't think I'm going to be disappointed if I don't, um, but that's what I would like to see for sure. Uh, I did enjoy the little cameo by by uh, Throg, <laughs> in the uh, very early on in the episode, and there was a lot of good stuff. Richard E. Grant was phenomenal. Yeah, and the great character designs there as well. And you even had, was it President Loki as well, pop up quickly? Yes, and uh-huh, yep, yep. I, I quite enjoyed that, showing how all Lokis will eventually all turn on each other, which I, I thought was kind of funny. Uh. But it's interesting as well. Last night we, we watched the movie. Have you ever seen the movie Midnight in Paris? Uh, I think I have. So it's a Woody Allen movie with Owen Wilson as the main character. He's mm-hmm. a writer who wanders around Paris and he ends up back in 1920s Paris. And of course, we just watched Loki and stuck on Midnight in Paris. So Owen Wilson, main character. Back in the 20s, he meets F. Scott Fitzgerald. And who played F. Scott Fitzgerald? Tom Hiddleston. <laughs> so they'd worked together a decade earlier. That I think Vic and I both just pointed at the TV at the same time like, 
they worked together before <laughs> so yeah so there is that and then yeah black widow we're, we're looking forward to black widow yeah, it's been a definitely. long long time coming and the idea of watching a marvel movie in the cinema with a bucket of popcorn and a coke by the side is a very pleasant thought definitely i'm looking forward to the scene so yeah that's tv movie wise but yeah just before we jump into the uh, reviews for this week just a quick reminder we we recently passed 150 episodes which is no small feat to say the least but we we were able to conduct a couple of really cool interviews and we threw them both out we we thought it'd be fun to do like a, a comic book type thing of here's cover a here's cover b here's your variant sort of thing or a Loki variant whatever way you want to look at that <laughs> but yeah we had some great chats there with uh, Joshua Cassara uh, of course one of Marvel Stormbreaker artists current artist on X-Force he's working on some interesting things as well that he couldn't quite go into detail with us, but we do try to get some information out of him. We did get his code name for what he's working on, <laughs> but you'll have to listen to the podcast to hear that. Uh, and then we were chatting with Jock as well, you know, one of my personal all-time, you know, comic heroes, you know, one of my favorite creators, and uh, that was uh, that was great as well. So give both of those a listen, plenty of info there, stuff on their career, stuff on their influences, what they're working on coming up, that kind of thing, and and those creator interviews are always just an absolute blast to do, so they are. I was sorry to, to miss the one with Jock as a result of uh, not being available this weekend, but uh, you conducted yourself uh, marvelously considering he's, uh, he's such a huge influence on, on the opening of the store and various things. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so it was good it, job. It, well, thank you very much. It was, it was an absolute pleasure to chat to him. A lot of that was in the preparation, you know, three full hours before I even chatted to him of just getting that uh, template perfect so but yeah no there was a lot of fun to, to listen to and or sorry a lot of fun to to chat to him and i think that does come across in the in the interview with him so yeah so check those out those are on the podcast network and then yeah there's other interviews just in case you haven't uh, indulged just yet you know we've chatted with ram v with chip zadarsky with rodney barnes jason sean alexander i mean it's it's quite humbling actually when you look back at some of the people we've chatted to in the last year <laughs> So, and uh, and let's see what's to come. Absolutely, we may have one or two more up our sleeves, ladies and gentlemen. But we will uh, we will announce those in due time. But anyway, we're going to talk some comics. So we're going to talk releases again from the thirtieth of June. So again, we we are doing it with a slightly more delayed format, so we can talk more spoilers. So we won't go into full full spoilers, but there will be plenty here. So just be wary of that if you are listening on, just in case there's titles you haven't got to yet. So. So a pretty big week this week for myself. I had 21 titles in total. Uh, that was 4DC. Uh, this was quite a week for DC. So this was, uh, I should say quickly, this was a five-week release window. So when you get five Wednesdays in a month, the last Wednesday nearly always has a lot of annuals, a lot of one-shots, that kind of thing. So with DC this week, I think there was only like four releases, maybe five releases. But anyway, so mine was 4DC, five Marvel and then I had, of course, I had loads of indie, 12 indie in total. Uh, what about yourself? What were your totals there? Pipping you at the post for the third week running, Alan. Not liking uh, it. Not liking nope, it. Nope, nope, nope. You're going to have to buy some more Marvel uh, in order to overtake me, I think. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 22 titles uh, for me. Two of those DC, 10 Marvel, and 10 indie. Yeah, so, yeah, I'm not liking this. Uh, I mean, for so long, I was the, you know, the current undefeated champ with, you know, the, the most titles every week. I'm just going to have to... I mean, you win either way because I'm buying them from you. Well, this is true. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'm just doing this on purpose to unearth your competitive streak. Uh, but yeah, we'll go through our normal format, which, of course, is honorable mentions first, going through DC, going through Marvel and the indie stuff, and then we'll always finish off as we do with our picks of the week. So... 
Kicking things off with DC, and this is uh, just a title that I'm on. I've tried to talk Keith into this. He buys nearly every book that's set in Gotham, but this is one of the few he doesn't, and I think he needs to change that because this is from one of our favorite writers, Ram V. So uh, what I'm talking about here is the Catwoman 2021 annual. So again, this week was uh, was filled with annuals and one-shots and so forth. So with this one, this is very much origin time. You know, Ram V is on the writing duties, which of course is a great thing. You know, you always worry when creative teams change for a one-off annual. Sometimes they're very disposable. They're not linked to the current story, that kind of thing. That's not the case here. You know, Ram uses this opportunity to expand on the origin of Father Valley. This is this has been a mysterious religious figure who has been stalking Selena from the shadows in the main title for quite some time. Uh, when it comes to art on this issue, you've actually got three artists. You've got Kyle Hot, who's a, a well-known uh, usually you can find them around the symbiotes and around Marvel a lot. Uh, the series regular artist Bruno Redondo is on this as well. And then there's actually a personal favourite artist of mine, Juan Ferreira, uh, working on this as well. Did an exceptionally great run on Green Arrow, especially in the Rebirth era. Uh, but it never feels disconnected. You know, the art flows really, really well. Their styles are similar enough that it flows, but you can also tell who's who as you go. Uh, with this issue as well, there's some legacy Batman characters brought into the mix here. You know, Ram V is playing around with some legacy characters and weaving them into the mythology uh, and and incorporating them into Father Valley's background. And it, it's a most welcome addition to the mythology in general. I think Catwoman continues to fly under the radar when it comes to the Bat books. You know, certainly in our store, you know, the, the numbers for Catwoman are nowhere near things like Batman you know Tom Taylor's Nightwing or even Joshua Williamson's Robin and and I think that's a bit of a shame I think it does the title a bit of a disservice as it's actually one of the strongest comics on the racks for DC at the moment Uh, I also went with this absolutely glorious variant cover which is just one of the nicest things but yeah the art the whole way through this is stellar great storytelling Ram when we chatted to him before he was telling us that he has plans for Catwoman for quite some time so I really do recommend jumping on it. And this is very much a Catwoman book. It's not a Batman dips in every three or four issues book. They're very much separated at this point, And therefore we can focus on Selina and her expanding rogues gallery as well. Father Valley's a great character. So yeah, that was the first one I wanted to throw about a attention out for, which was the Catwoman 2021 annual. Next up, we have got uh, the Teen Titans Academy yearbook one shot, kind of kind of an annual in itself. Would you say, Alan? Very much so. Very much so. Um, this was this was another one of those. Uh, it, it's just very intelligently worded as a yearbook as opposed mm, to annual. It just it fits the the paradigm of the book. It was another compilation, and after a few books of that type of exceptional quality, particularly from DC. I've kind of changed my mind on the on the compilation format from from what it was a few years back. That must hurt you to say that DC are the ones that change your mind on this. Not at all. <laughs> Not one little bit. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed the format of this. You know, nine times out of ten, annuals are just one story the whole way through. But I really like this. You know, it was presented in that yearbook style. But what was cool was that it was Tim Sheridan working the whole way through. You know, the writer was consistent the whole way through. Uh, individual stories with different artists and and I think this added to the enjoyment of the overall book. Yeah, I think so. I mean overall the format and the book are fun. The yearbooky style with you know the stories separated by faculty profiles and campus snapshots from throughout the year was a bit of a bit of a breath of fresh air. Um the overall 
you know, construction of the thing was four stories. Um, the one about the mysterious living ragdoll student Stitch was probably my favourite, uh, though I kind of enjoyed them all. And the last one ties directly to the ongoing series and the story of Red X. Yeah, that was the story called Extraction. So again, series writer Tim Sheridan and also series artist Rafa Sandoval doing that. And and I think that's important. You know, it means that it doesn't lose its momentum. It's built up after a few issues. You know, Teen Titans Academy is four issues in at this point. And at least this tied into it. It means it doesn't feel like a, a cheap cash in to a, to a newly popular title. Yeah, and as you said, you know, all the stories were by main series writer Tim Sheridan, variety of artists and colorists in the stories, but they all worked well to capture the the very unique energy of that of that series that it sort of shares a wee bit with uh, with Strange Academy and Marvel. So, I mean, I would say if you're on the main series already, the yearbook is a no brainer. Yeah, wholeheartedly agree. If you're on the the main series, you know this this is definitely essential. And again, it expands that world as well, as you say the the fun little profiles of teachers and so forth the whole way through it. it it's just a really well put together issue, uh, and that is Teen Titans Academy Yearbook Number One. So, as I said, it was a quieter week for DC. So just a couple of honourable mentions there, but you never know. We may swing back around to DC later. We will see. But we'll move on to Marvel next, and the first title up. What a title it is. This this was close to pick of the week material, I think. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, Bitter A Bill number four of five. So it is the penultimate issue. Um, I'm amazed how, you know, writer, artist Daniel Warren Johnson has made this mini series about, like, Bill's a very often forgotten Thor supporting character. Um, through exceptional writing and art, he's, he's really made it into a really dark, disconsolate month-to-month unmissable epic yeah again as, as i say i think this continues to be one of marvel's very best titles and i i think it's always great to see a so-called as you say like a supporting character or you know i use the term secondary maybe loosely but certainly better a bill would be a supporting character in thor rather than the main person but the, sure. the, the thing about it is when you, when you have a character like that you can almost give them to a left field creator and allow them to roam free with their particular style you know Warren Johnson's art is about as far removed as you get from any of the big two, their house art style. You know, think back to Wonder Woman, Dead Earth, it was the exact same. But but his art style is so expressive, diverse, and you know, I, I can't think of any other term, but downright metal that it's a it's definitely amongst the best looking books on the shelves. Yeah, I mean I think <laughs> I think metal is a really good way to describe this this particular book. That that really fits the the whole yeah the whole thing you know so i mean as i say this is the this is the second last issue bill and his companions pit the troll scourge the executioner and the anthropomorphized version of bill's ship and longtime companion scuttlebutt journey towards the prize of searcher's twilight blade muspelheim uh during that bill is forced to relive the moments of pain and sorrow from his life that that brought him to where he is particularly his transformation into the you know the cyborg protector of his of his people um which is at the core of this you know someone who is dissatisfied with their 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 look and their body um and and, and who they are and what they are um so that which is kind of where the darkness and the the the, the sorrow comes from but pacing storytelling artwork definitely this is amongst the best things coming out of marvel this year bill is an incredibly relatable character he's equal parts strength and vulnerability 
insightfulness and blindness and I guess alien and very much human yeah just absolutely wonderful book and you know if you're someone who just appreciates great art as well I mean there's at least two double page spreads in this title that are just jaw-dropping you know before the fire came when you know his home planet was destroyed and also at the end where you see that huge blade for the first time is just absolutely amazing artwork and and yeah emotional storytelling as well you know the the scene where he sees his mum for the last time he's like this was the last Mm -hmm. time we spoke and 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 that kind of stuff so yeah i mean by this point with better eight billets at issue four as keith said it is going to be a five issue mini series so even if you have missed out on it at this point it's not too far away on trade and we cannot recommend it enough so that's better rate bill by daniel warren johnson and we should mention mike spicer on uh colors as well beautifully so beautifully so so i'm gonna dive into a bunch of marvel stuff that i don't think you're picking up yet alan not as of yet. These are, uh, I know one of them is a graphic novel purchase for me, which is uh, linked to a classic Marvel story, uh, which I'll certainly get to. But yeah, definitely this next guy is all you, all you. Absolutely. So that's uh, Cable Number 11 uh, by uh, by Jerry Duggan and uh, Phil Noto. Um, this is another penultimate issue, and for the first time in a long time, the return of Old Man Cable to present-day Krakoa. So it's it's a book that has continued to be one of the best books of the X-Books, uh, with Jerry Duggan in charge from the start, and Phil Noto swinging for the fences every issue. I do think this was maybe one of the best issues so far. Um, it's almost like a, an Ocean's Eleven Assemble the Crew issue. You remember that? You remember that? Uh, episode of Rick and Morty that that took the took the piss out of heist movies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you son of a bitch, I'm in. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's it's definitely you know an assembly of crew. They form a they form a team to thwart Strife. Strife is the clone of of Old Man Cable, uh, designed to fight Cable through time and forever by apocalypse. And young Cable uh, comes to the realization that he's not he's not fit to. Uh, to go up against Strife and he must bring his older self, the one that he murdered a while ago, back to the present. So he has to unmurder his older self. Uh, only ever happens in a, in, a, in a time travel epic. So the return of older Cable, one of my favorite Marvel characters, um, is is very much in character. He's not in the least wee bit phased by his resurrection, not skipping a beat. And there's a suitably emotional core save for the reunion with his, his daughter, um, Hope, uh, who he, who, uh, I guess who he shepherded from, from her, her, whenever she was an infant, right the way through up to, to her, her teenage years. Fans of the original older Cable, like myself, will no doubt be pleased. Um, and everyone who's come to love the teen version of Cable is probably a little bit worried as we, we build towards what I think is going to be an epic finale. This is the sort of issue that makes me regret the issues of this series that were most likely lost to crossovers, like, you know, the, the, the X of Swords and the Hellfire Gala issues, as it seems like there was maybe a few more issues worth of stories to tell here as opposed to just the one. Um, and also, it's worth pointing out, another amazing Phil Noto cover for this series, just a close-up of, of young Cable's face, the the eye that has the three scars over it, and, and uh, sort of superimposed against that is the, is the sword that he uses. It's a beautiful, beautiful cover. Um, yeah, Cable's, so, Cable's just never been a character I, I've got into as much. I mean, obviously, I've, I've had my run-ins with Clay over this uh, regarding 
the the classic era the rob liefeld cable era but i I promise to dig into it at some point i do have a rather glorious compendium there that should cover most of that i would argue that while rob liefeld did create the character and the look of the character and so forth and so on uh that there are better stories told than by rob liefeld and certainly a lot of the deeper background the uh whenever it was revealed that that cable was actually the the son of, of Cyclops and, and the clone of Jean Grey, Madeline Pryor, who had been shot into the future and raised by the clan of Scanny and, and all of that stuff. That stuff didn't come from Rob Liefeld. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so the deep background and what really made Cable Cable to me, rather than just, you know, a, a big pack, you know, pack wearing, gun toting, you know, dude. Um, I, I think the best of that stuff maybe didn't come from Liefeld. But mm-hmm. anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, Moving on to the Marvels number three by uh, Kurt Busiek, uh, Yildirim Sinar, and Richard Izanove. This is maybe the strongest issue of this series so far. As things warm up, and there's a brilliant balancing between the two or three story strands, some great callbacks, and some deep cuts into Marvel history. Story centers around a pre-Fantastic Four Reed Richards and Ben Grimm investigating the the mystery centering around the the nation of Sin Kong, which is sort of retroactively very um, very central to a lot of Marvel mythos, especially in the early days. And, you know, Kurt Busiek keeps things moving along at a brisk pace with, uh, with Yildir Eisenhower and Richard Eisenhower making proceedings look very much in the, in the mighty Marvel manner, you know, that, 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 that Marvel house style. Um, and it's, it's very welcome actually in a book that is, that is very much at the, at the core of that. The team, the team that's assembled in book here around uh, Richards and Grimm is brilliant. Uh, and really, this is where all the deep cuts come in. You've got a, you've got George, George Turleton, who is the, the man who eventually becomes Modoc, the first Modoc. Um, we've got the guy who will become the French super villain or mercenary Peregrine. We've got uh, Georges Batroc, who you will know from uh, from recently uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier and previously uh, The Winter Soldier. And we have Sergeant Craig Crash Simpson, who will eventually go on to raise Johnny Blaze. And it's it's Crash Simpson, Johnny's foster father, who Johnny's, who, whose life Johnny saves from terminal cancer. And that's that's where he does the deal with Mephisto that turns him into Ghost Rider. So there's a lot of deep, deep cuts in there. It's great fun, really enjoying the pace, the jumping around to the timelines and the exploration of Marvel history and legacy. And it has me wanting to pull out uh, the history of the Marvel Universe that Kurt Busiek did a couple of years ago again. And there's one panel in here. Uh, and this, as I say, this is pre-Fantastic Four, Reed and Ben. And there's one panel where, uh, where Reed and, and Ben are sort of disagreeing about something and about you know people's loyalties and what's going what's gonna to happen. And uh, Ben says, "You don't belong here, Reed. You don't, you don't belong anywhere near combat brains like yours. But I ain't walking away. Uh, you say this is the thing to do. I'm here. You know best." And then there's a panel, and it's just it's just Ben, human Ben Grimm, looking at the looking at the camera, looking back at Reed, saying, "You always do." And in the shadow in the background, the shadow is the outline of the thing, you know. And I just thought that is so so spot on because the trust that that Ben Grimm places and read and then eventually what what happens you know where, where where ben becomes the monster as a result of choices read makes um i just thought it was a lovely that was a lovely panel that was really that was really central for me and my enjoyment of this particular this particular book um 
moving on then to one I think you did have a look at. I did the, indeed, uh, yeah. This is uh, the United States of Captain America. This is essentially 80 years of Captain America being celebrated with a five-issue miniseries. Yes, indeed. So, yeah, one of one of five United States of, of Captain America. As you say, Marvel celebrates the 80th anniversary of Captain America, but doesn't do it with a rehash of old tell, tales or a celebration, you know, of, of what's gone before, but something, I think, considerably more interesting and, and evocative. It's an exploration of the identity of Captain America, what it means to be that icon, and through that, of American history and of American values. Um, each of the five issues will have a rotating creative team and the format I think is set out here as a main story following our developing mystery uh, and featuring featuring Steve Rogers and a backup story featuring I guess the the member of the underground network of Captain Americas uh, who features in that particular main story and in each in each issue of it so that network of Captain Americas are revealed in this to be working across the country to improve their various communities so the main story has one of my current favourite writers, Christopher Cantwell, um, with art by Dale Eaglesham, and it has the shield being stolen from Steve by a mysterious imposter wearing the Captain America colours. Cap enlists Falcon to give chase, and it quickly becomes clear that there's more going on here, and it's, it's larger than just the theft of the shield. They come into contact with another, in inverted commas, Captain America, a more rustic, um, I guess, folksy version of Captain America. Uh, and the pair, they soon discover that there are, are many other people across the country taking up a version of Steve's mantle to defend their communities. And someone wants them all dead. Yeah, this this opening story, it felt like classic Captain America storytelling. It even had a hint of Brubaker Epting to me. Uh, the inner monologue from Steve is brilliantly written at the start of this, you know, as he questions his place in the modern mm. world and, you know, what it means to be Captain America and so forth. And also, most importantly, this issue provides you with all the ingredients required for cleaning Captain America's shield. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I like that, yeah. <laughs> you know, baking soda, salt, distilled white vinegar, and most importantly, some elbow grease, of course, from Cap. <laughs> uh, and, and to be fair, I mean, you could probably find something that... Uh something in the modern day that that does exactly what that concoction does but uh that's probably something that steve's mother was using for cleaning back in the 1930s yeah that's, um, that's fair you know so yeah i mean the adventure the whole adventure the first story is action-packed comic dialogue seems to set the stage for what's to follow including the idea of the underground network of caps but what as you say i mean what really resonated with me and lifts the whole piece up is steve's initial narration about the concept of captain america the the Captain America identity, his identity being stripped away and repurposed over the years for various agendas. And Christopher Cantwell doesn't pull any punches here and calling out the American dream for not only being false, but potentially a dangerous fabrication used by people against other people, you know, making it less of the American dream and more of the American nightmare or the American lie. Yeah. I mean, this was, possibly my favorite part of the issue here and you know it explored some hard-hitting themes that are you know prevalent in the real world i mean especially the 
the little part in in a supermarket where there's a big fat guy wearing a Captain America t-shirt shouting at someone much smaller than him and being very angry it made me think of how in the modern world how like cops were using the Punisher symbol to mean Mm -hmm. something that was completely against what it actually stood for or in fact they make America great again or you know they you know all of that sort of sort of toxic nationalism um yeah, absolutely. I mean, the second story is by Josh Trillo and uh, Jan Basalgia. Uh, it's it's an origin of Aaron Fisher, who is the queer homeless Captain America of the railroad who we meet in the main story. Like the first story, it sort of comes with some pretty strong critiques of American society, particularly how corporations and, and, and governments sort of treat the other in society. Um, and I guess a lot of the themes of the book hold up very well in light of Tanahisi coach run on Captain America. Yeah, I mean, overall, I thought very strong beginning to this 80th anniversary miniseries. You know, it's it's also interesting to note that this is how Marvel approached their centenary series. You know, you think of Chip Zdarsky's 12 issue miniseries for the Invaders as well. It's it's interesting that this is the format Marvel approached it with, as opposed to sort of the anthology format that DC utilizes the the hundred page spectaculars. Yeah. I mean, I wonder, have, has that been a, a deliberate choice based upon that um, or or what? But I, I mean, I really like it. I mean, I think it definitely sits apart from your standard anniversary celebration. And I'm looking forward to seeing where it goes and, and who we meet along the way from the uh, from the underground network of Captain America's. Yeah, so that is United States of Captain America number one and one last Marvel to finish off with then. Yes, sir. The second issue of Shang-Chi by uh, Jean Lung Yang and... Uh, Dyke Rion. Um, it's everything I expected from a Shang-Chi book after only two issues. We've got humor and we've got adventure, we've got drama, we've got spy thriller, we've got some heroic martial arts fisticuffs to remind you that this is in fact a superhero comic. Um, the, 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 uh, the pitch of the comic, the cover, you know, suggests you've got Shang-Chi facing off against Captain America, but that doesn't come to fruition in exactly the way you might expect, but it does very much feed into the Shang-Chi versus the Marvel Universe um, sort of, I guess, uh, name of the tale. Um, but there's a huge amount going on in the larger story that's that's really keeping me interested. So as I say, part two of Shang-Chi versus the Marvel Universe, it finds Shang and his brother Takeshi, aka Brother Saber, traveling to Macau to obtain a cosmic cube for the Five Weapons Society. The, the criminal society of Shang-Chi's father that Shang now leads. Uh, however, danger soon rears its head as Modok, his second mention in this particular episode, and who delivers in every panel he's in. I think uh, I think <laughs> Jean Lun Yang has been watching the, the Modok cartoon. Uh, so we've got Modok, we've got Hizium scientists, we've got Hydra, we've got the Hand. They all want the cube. Um, so it, it, it sort of goes that way, and it, it does so very, very well. So I would say... A second mention for James Bond in this in this particular episode. If you like James Bond and if you specifically like Casino Royale, you'll enjoy this issue. Awesome. Shang-Chi number two. One for you James Bond fans out there as well. Though I don't remember James Bond utilizing Kung Fu an awful lot. He did try very quickly in The Man with the Golden Gun, but was very quickly stepped aside by two schoolgirls who were much better in the Kung Fu department. <laughs> and he said in the background. And Shang-Chi would kick his ass too. I think so. I think so. But Bond would take him out with a sniper rifle. So that is the Marvel Honorable Mention. So we'll move on to the indie side of things. So again, of course, loads of great stuff here and, and loads of different... Uh, 
loads of different publishers as well here. We've got titles from Image, we've got titles from Boom, we've got titles from AWA, we've got titles from Aftershock. But we're actually going to kick things off with a title from Vault Comics, and this is called Barbaric Number One. So you know you're off to a good start when the blurb on the opening page or on the opening cover, sorry, is what you want and way, way more, and that's from Scott Snyder, no less. So Conan, step aside. There is a new swords and sorcery badass in town. What a first issue this was. Uh, this comes from writer Michael Marecki and artist Nathan Gooden. Now, Barbaric centers on Owen. He's uh, a barbarian in a world filled with all your familiar fantasy tropes, you know, multiple humanoid races, an abundance of magic, gladiatorial combat. And he's cursed to do the right thing as it's defined by his talking bloodthirsty axe. Yes, you heard that right his talking bloodthirsty axe. He can basically only attack people and, and do it if they deserve it. He can't just go after innocent people if he likes or, you know, the, the opening scene has him in a gladiatorial combat arena and, you know, this slave, slave trader has basically bought his life and he says, right, kill these three people for the entertainment of those in the gladiatorial arena and he says, that's not how this works. I'm bound to some higher level magic than this but... Yeah, I mean, with this title, you know, over the past several years, comic readers have found a new surge of sword and sorcery titles, you know, especially with Conan's revival via Marvel. Barbaric number one quickly establishes its own vibe by producing this familiar barbarian world, but with an entirely unfamiliar approach. You know, its its dialogue is very modern. You know, there there's plenty of swearing the whole way through and slang being used and things like that. You know, it's very boisterous in its style. It's brutal in its combat inventive in its plotting as well and just consistently hilarious the whole way through this the book just drips cool and metal and and to be honest it deserves to find a much bigger audience than your traditional vault title you know i i must have been contacted 10 15 times about this title the week it came out it unfortunately shows the weaknesses of the comic book ordering system where you need to pre-order months in advance because vault comics are not going to do big print runs just in case something doesn't sell but I do have second print number ones on order and I highly recommend you get on this. This is so much fun. Great example of comic books. And again, if you're a Conan fan, it's it's a little less serious of a take than Conan would be and definitely focuses on the humor as much as anything. So yeah, Barbaric number one. Brilliant title from, uh, from Vault Comics. So we'll move away from Vault and on to Image. So what have we got up first from Image? From Image, I'm uh, going to pull out crossover number seven, uh, and it's hateful to say it, sort of given the guest writer, but I think this is probably the best issue of this series so far. Well, it's not hateful if it's the truth. You know, this <laughs> this this could set up a whole new direction for crossover, I think, you know, with, with one-off issues done by guest creators at the end of story arcs, and it allows series creators Donny Cates and Jeff Shaw to actually get further ahead in the main narrative. Yeah, I mean... It's a really interesting issue. It delves very deeply into metafiction with Steve Murray uh, masquerading as Dave, uh, Steve, a.k.a. issue writer Chip Zdarsky, uh, lying low and trying to avoid the murderer who is apparently killing comic creators. Uh, and in doing so, he comes across his comic universe counterpart, the version of Chip Zdarsky that was written into the Sex Criminals comic book. Yeah, as a long-time Sex Criminals fan, this brought me so much joy. You know, certainly Chip is able to catch up non-readers of Sex Criminals, you know, make it so that they weren't lost. But I definitely think this was something that rewarded us long-term, long-time readers. 
I think uh, there there was definitely a a moment that obviously Chip and Chip and Donnie have hit upon where they were trying to figure out when Chip had been a comic book character. It was just that was just a real uh, moment of serendipity, <laughs> you know, that he is a comic a comic book version and therefore could have come over from the comic universe. But in this, Chip as a writer bravely but glibly focuses on his own vulnerabilities as a person and as a creator, set against the character he has created with his pen name and imbued into the the much more confident sex criminals version of himself yeah this this whole issue was just fantastic you know it was simultaneously outrageous but also really really heartfelt as well and and it's a balance not many writers are capable of but as we all know and as he'll tell you himself chip is an ordinary writer <laughs> lots of uh, lots of uh, friendly jabs at, uh, at other sort of creators and friends in the industry yeah, and uh, I enjoyed the change up in art as well. You know, it was it does allow the one off to be differentiated from the main title as well. Yeah, I mean the regular series artist was, I guess, more than able to sort of replace this issue by Phil Hester and his regular anchor uh, Andre Parks, and they do a great job of not just presenting the two versions of Chip, uh, but also mimicking the, the format that was set out by Jeff Shaw for defining. The real characters from the comic characters, you know, that sort of, uh, I guess, dot, dot, dot matrix appearance, you know. Did you notice the uh, the very good Marvel reference in here as well? Where uh, they were chatting and he's like, and when I'm chipped, people aren't laughing at me. They're laughing at you. Don't care. Like, what are off of Howard's back? <laughs> That's right. It's a hard to duck uh, moment. Yeah, back when, when Chip worked on that as well. But yeah, just a, a brilliant, brilliant issue. If you're a fan of Chip in any way, you know, get get on this. It also interested, uh, ended sorry, in a really interesting way where they brought in a couple of characters people may or may not be familiar with. I did have one or two people ask me in the store if if I knew who the last two characters on the on the last page were. So the detectives from Powers, isn't it? It is indeed, yeah. The Brian Michael Bendis, Michael Avon Oeming series, which I believe metamorphosized into a TV show. I think it was on the Sony PlayStation TV or something, but mm-hmm. never watched it. But good series, though, in general. So, But yeah, Crossover 7, I actually agree with you, Keith. I think this is the best issue of Crossover so far. So well done, Chip Zdarsky. Just take over the rest of the title. Yeah, oh no, come on, that's, uh, that's harsh words, harsh words. Um, so moving on, but staying with Image, uh, we've got Department of Truth 10 uh, by, uh, by obviously uh, James Tinian and Martin Simmons. And uh, uh, Martin Simmons is, is art and colour, isn't that right? Uh, he is indeed, Jen, and it's lettered yeah. by Aditya Bidikar. That's the very one. So this, this issue delves back a little more into the practical on the ground work cried out by the Department of Truth as Cole is introduced by Hawk to the hunt for the most popular of the belief-driven manifestations known as Topas uh, in the form of Bigfoot and that's set against the story of an obsessed uh, Bigfoot hunter, uh, really, really cleverly done. There's, you know, the whole the whole issue is very dialogue and exposition heavy though it never feels too inaccessible but the counter is that in the issue there's not a lot of room for the phenomenally talented Martin Simmons to play. Um, I mean, there are some great, some great visual moments, but I think this issue felt closest to an episode of X Files for me than than any other, you know, issue in the series. And seeing the Bigfoot phenomenon both from the inside of the department and through the eyes of an obsessed believer whose very belief reinforces the existence of that manifestation was great. And it's probably the most direct example of the hows and whys of the department since 
the first issue and the big the wall of ice you know on the flat earth side of things you know so uh yeah very very good stuff yeah, I mean, with Department of Truth, I'm continuing to collect it, but I've started to sort of hold back issues of it, you know, so I can read three or four in a row. I, there's just, there's such depth to this world. There's so many great characters, a lot to sink your teeth into. I find it actually flows better as a story when I've got those sort of three, four issues in a row to read. So uh, I did have a flick through it, though. I did, I see what you mean with the sort of handwritten pages and the notes and so forth. Mm. And you're maybe taking out six seven pages of art that the incredibly martin simmons could be drawing but maybe that's to do with uh, the deadlines and so on and so forth as well i but... mean i don't know the the i mean the, the design of those pages i think was martin simmons as well you know um and i think those were very very important as you see the obsession of the hunter through those through those diary through those letters to his kid mm-hmm. um you know it's it's really interesting how the how this obsession destroyed his life and in doing so deepened and we know that those deepening obsessions are exactly what what makes the manifestation stronger, you know, through belief. Yeah. No, mm. so that is Department of Truth at number ten. So we'll move away from Image Comics and across to Boom and one of your personal favorite creators on this one. Yeah, absolutely. Al Ewing on issue seven of We Only Find Them When They're Dead, uh, alongside uh, Simone DeMio on fantastic art. Just the artist is unbelievable, but. I mean, this book is a massive century-spanning sci-fi epic. It's more generational than personal, and it's a space, no pun intended, where Al Ewing is thriving. Uh, and, And then he drops this issue, which provided the connection, I think, between this volume and the previous, with a more personal story of Jason Heuer, who was one of George Malick's original crew on the V-Hand 2, and the story of Jason over 40 years becoming the head, uh, Malik's chosen of the, the religious order of worshippers who worship the returned deceased God form of George Malik himself. That will make no sense whatsoever if you're not reading this book. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of time jumps in this issue, to say the least. I mean, we kick off in 2367 and, you know, end up narratively in 2414. But yeah, I, I agree. This is this is not a series for a casual reader. It may sound like a really obvious things to, a really obvious thing to say, but this is a title of rewards paying close attention, I think. Yeah, absolutely. This particular issue is light on action but heavy on personal drama, but I think it's definitely a key issue with regard to joining the the first volume together with this with volume 2 and I'm now keen to go back and reread the first volume in order to 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 give it that close attention in light of what I now know. Um, you know, the, the art continues to feel like a wonderful fusion of, of Western and manga sensibilities. And I don't know, the, 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 the angles of the, the faces, it reminds, yeah, it reminds me a wee bit of Battle of the Planets in some parts. You know, there's these acute facial angles where Simone DeMille brilliantly accentuates the tension that Ewing's building, you know, with, and then the, the, the color, you know, with Miori and Andwar's designs, you know, attention to speech bubbles and laying those out in specific words and bold. Really, there's 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 a real tone that's been communicated here. Yeah, the art's absolutely stellar. I think it, it stands side by side with, I think, Seven Secrets in that it, it does fuse, as you say, those Western comic sensibilities with manga style. But it's also able to create its own unique look and aesthetic. I don't think there's a... I don't think there's a book that looks like this on the shelves. No, I, I do. I see what you're saying about you know the the 
the comparing with with Seven Secrets, but I think Seven Secrets is a wee bit more of a of a European cartoon style, you know that that fused with manga, whereas this is a much harder painted. You know, there, there's 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 even a difference between those two. Though I, I totally agree with your I totally agree with your uh, your your comparison there. I mean, I'm absolutely loving this book at the minute. There's nothing else like it that's coming out. Yeah, and as as Keith stated, there is the uh, the first trade is available, which covers the first five issues. I mean, it was a series that the first couple of issues I thought it was a lot to take in, and I stuck with it, and I'm really glad I have because I think you're. But again, you got to pay attention to this, which again sounds really obvious, but. There are some comics you can read and just sort of let them breeze over you and you don't really have to focus on every little detail, but I don't think that's how Al Ewing works. I think everything that's in the book is there for a reason. So, so. There's no there's no harm in having to having to work a wee bit for, for the payoff, you know, yeah. as a reader. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, next up is from AWA Studios. Uh, we have Redemption number five. So this is... This is the fifth issue of five, written by Christoph Faust, uh, Mike Diodato Jr. on art, and Lee Lockridge on colours. Yeah, I mean, this is the finale of a brilliant, almost made for the big screen, post-apocalyptic Western thriller, where all of the leads are just kick-ass ladies, and not one of them is a damsel in distress. Yeah, and I enjoyed this last issue a lot as well, but I, I can't help but feel it was maybe a little bit rushed. I think that so much happens in such a short period of time. And I would have actually rather the series was extended by an issue, you know, give it six, make it a six issue miniseries, give it a little more time to breathe. And in a way, that's actually more of a compliment than a criticism, as it's just been a, a series I've enjoyed so much in a world I would happily spend more time in. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think maybe the pacing could have been reordered a wee bit. Um, you know, there was maybe a wee bit of filler earlier on that uh, we could have done without in order to to give more pages to this to this finale. But... That incredible Mexican standoff scene. <laughs> that was something else. And I mean, this is a book that's violent, but I don't think it's gratuitously violent. And uh, you know, Mike Diodato is a is a veteran, and so ably depicts that gritty. You know, he depicts it all in that gritty, detailed style of his. It's you know another great done in five money from AWA, and I'd be, as you say, pleased to see this. Mad Max S word further expanded if uh, Faust and Diodata had the right story to tell. Yeah, I can't help but feel with how it did end that this is possibly the end of the road for the world of redemption. But yeah, very much in agreement. I would happily revisit if there was a, a good story to tell. So redemption number five there. And then we have another number five, but we're back to image comics with two moons number five. Yeah, so uh, this is... Uh... Daniel, uh, John Arcudi, sorry, and uh, Valerio Giangiordano um, on, on art with colours by uh, Bill Crabtree. And the colours, I think, mean an awful lot to this. Uh, they, they really give it that 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 Western sort of Civil War-y sort of, sort of feel, you know, that um, slightly sepia sort of tone that we associate with photographs and stuff that we see from that period. But yeah, rather than the end of the series, this is the end of the first arc. It's an action-packed issue leaves me wondering where this will go next and equally though hopefully not it would be a fine stopping point but i sort of feel like this was an origin story of uh, of two moons of virgil and there's a lot more to tell so uh, in that way it might be viewed as maybe the weakest issue of the series because it was a wee bit placeholdery you know did you get that feeling yeah i mean i i do wonder if this will actually continue it's it's sort of got that cool open-ended vibe of you know 
Tumans accepting accepting who he is, what he can do. You know, it has that little scene of him riding off with the blue skies behind him and that one with nature and you know the bad guy being hung and so forth. It's sort of it has that cool open ended vibe that it could be the end. I mean, there's not even a to be continued or a you know end of arc one, but at the same time, the trade solicitors volume one, so maybe more. Yeah, and I think we've seen it in previews, haven't we? I don't know, have we? Maybe I'm uh, wrong. Maybe I'm just misremembering, yeah. but or maybe it's this month's previews. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we'll uh, we'll we'll see. We'll see. Um, but you know, yeah, for the last four issues, Arcudi and Gian Giordano have they've created a a storyline of monsters that walk amongst men, and only the main protagonist, uh, Virgil Tumuns Morris, um, who's uh, from Native American uh, stock, can see them, and it's a tale that seems seems sort of to be very well researched and very respectful of indigenous american mythos and of, of civil war history as well yeah i've loved the horror elements of the book mostly i think that's where the titles really shone those sort of nightmarish creature designs and and then yeah some great character work as well yeah it's been a very strong title and i really love all that sort of word within a word stuff the sort of things that you get in you know the dresden files or or uh, or Coffee and Heroes, uh, you know, uh, bingo card, Highlander, <laughs> <laughs> you know, those sort of secret world within a world. And, you know, the artwork throughout Two Moons is superb. It's stunning. It's vibrant. There's, you know, some really explosive visual moments. And, and as I say, there's just that earthy, almost rustic uh, colouring that really lends itself to the to the era in which this, this story takes place. So yes, I, I I hope this does continue. Yes, as we say, the uh, the the trade paperback has been solicited. So if you're catching up uh, and fancy some uh, some horror to go with your war and your cowboys, that's a good title to jump into. So mm-hmm. that is two moons and just one last honourable mention. This is uh, speaking of cowboys, uh, one from Aftershock Comics. Yes, uh, one from Aftershock Comics, Undone by Blood or the Other Side of Eden, number four, um, by Lonnie Nadler, Zach Thompson, and Sammy Kivella. And this is the the end of the second volume of Undone by Blood. Um, and the final issue of the second volume of the series is characterized by, you know, the series is characterized by the, the protagonist's in-story reading of the dime novel adventures of cowboy Solomon Eaton. That and the revenge that that covers both volumes of this are the only conceit that seemingly join the previous volume to this volume. Um, and as is and should be the case with revenge stories, tales of guilt and betrayal, this doesn't end well for anyone. It's hard to have a protagonist come out looking good when the last issue ended with the death of a child. You know, and so it's, it's definitely dark, dark stuff. And while I didn't, maybe connect with the second story nor the characters in it to the same degree as I did the first. The connective tissue of the Saul Eaton Cowboy story was more than enough to keep me attached to the to the overall narrative of this. You know, that just that just I just love that format, just the the the, the protagonist, whoever they may be, uh, in different eras, you know, and in, in the in the original it was the late seventies and this it's the forties, you know, reading the stories of, of Solomon Eaton and and the, the story in it mirroring what happens in the dime novel um and it's just all it's all revenge so this is great i would highly recommend picking this up Alan. 
Cool, nice one. So that is Undone by Blood, which was, uh, or the other side of Eden, number four, and that is indeed a, a sequel series. Volume one is available on trade paperback. So that'll do it for the honourable mentions, and we will jump straight in then to our picks of the week. So an interesting couple of picks this week. I, I actually think our, our picks could have almost been interchangeable. I would say you, you could be right, yeah. Mm-hmm. You're not you're not wrong in that. So we're going to lead the way with my own choice, uh, and that's probably only because I updated the template before Keith did, so it makes a change. <laughs> it's usually the other way around. Uh, but no, this the one for me this week that really, really stood out is the Green Arrow 80th Anniversary, 100-page Super Spectacular. So we, we talked about it before there with the United States of Captain America, about how Marvel tends to do little miniseries, things like that, to, you know, show respect to their characters, to their to their lineage, to their heritage, and so forth. DC seemed to have cornered this little market of doing these 100-page spectaculars, you know, and, and I'm a big, big fan of them. You know, the format of pulling in the best writers and artists of the current era to work on characters who have stood the test of time, I think, is a brilliant one. We've had Batman, we've had Superman, we've had Wonder Woman, The Flash, The Joker, and even Catwoman so far. And now it's time for the Emerald Archer. And, you know, whisper quietly, this may be the best one yet. Yeah, I mean, Green Arrow isn't, I think, always the most appreciated of DC's legacy heroes. I mean, he sometimes gets a bit of a short shrift in comics, despite the fact his eight-season TV outing being more consistent than most of the the DC movies. I mean, it's it's so nice to see his 80th birthday honoured in the the 100-page format that DC have adopted to mark these occasions. And I absolutely agree with you. Of all the ones I've read, and that's a fair few of them, this has probably been my favourite. Yeah, as you say, Green Arrow, he's had a bit of a tough time in comics as of late. The the Rebirth run was, in my humble opinion anyway, absolutely excellent, you know. But there hasn't been a new issue since that run culminated with issue 50, and that was all the way back in May 2019. It may have factored into, you know, where Heroes in Crisis was and, and, every, and, and the death of Roy at the time and so forth. Uh, but it's definitely worth checking that Rebirth run out, if for no other reason than just the hard-traveling hero arc, which had... Oliver basically going from like Metropolis to Gotham to Themyscira trying to recruit the Justice League for a uh, for something. I was brilliant, brilliant. Um, but yeah, there's there's not been any mini series either, and uh, not much of an appearance in Justice League. But with this 80th anniversary issue, we're reminded of just how great a character he can be when the right creative teams are involved, and almost every story here is a home run. Yeah, agreed. Um, just a note: he he is in, in Bendis' current Justice League. Uh, which is nice to see. I would uh, check it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and oh, yeah, and also in the core Justice League title. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's he's in there alongside Black Adam and Black Canary and and Superman and Batman and the lads. But but yeah, I mean this is it was twelve stories of various lengths, um, and uh, there's a a raft of rotating creative talent and highlighting various eras or points and tones of story from. From Green Arrow's long and, and varied history, and most of them were superb. Yeah, I mean, it, the, things are kicked off with the disappearing bandit. This is from the team of Mariko Tamaki, who's currently doing great work on Detective Comics, and artist Javier Rodriguez. This is a fun tale, right, straight out of the golden age, and f- features really stellar art, reminiscent of a bygone era. You know, you then have Tom Taylor and Nicholas Scott give us an absolutely great origin story for one of his most famous arrows, the Boxing Glove Arrow which has a great cameo from a lesser-used DC character as well as Oliver's sparring partner. 
You have Stephanie Phillips uh, and Chris Mooneyham delivering a great story, exploring the massive chip on Ollie's shoulder that, you know, as he's just not taken as seriously as he should be by the rest of the Justice League. We had a Mike Grell story in here as well, which was very classic Green Arrow. You know, obviously a, a ridiculously legendary Green Arrow uh, creator there. And, you know, escapating? Is that even a word? Green Arrow <laughs> escapating? I don't know, but I'm going to coin it anyway. But it seems to, it seems that there may be more to that story. It does say definitely not the end. So this might just be the opening act in a longer story. A special mention actually going to Devin Grayson and Max Fimara's trip down Speedy's memory lane, you know, not shying away from the darker moments for that character and and making Speedy a better person and stronger character for facing up to, to those times and and coming out the other side. And, you know, all this, I haven't even mentioned Ram V, Benjamin Perse, Vita Ayala, or even Jeff Lemire on writing duties, all paired up with top-level artists such as Otto Schmidt and Andrea Sorrentino. You know, we are spoiled here. Yeah, I mean... The, uh, the Jeff Lemire story was definitely sort of the darkest and, and it sort of was the last Green Arrow story. It, it, it dove a little more into the slightly more mystical side, I felt, but the, the Arrow and the song uh, was the, the Ram V story and probably as a result of the resonance of the latest issue of Leila Star, uh, I knew it was a Ram V story before I even saw his name listed. I just I just went, that's, that's Ram V. You know, there was a... I don't know what it was. You know, it was kind of from the point of view of the Arrow, maybe, in the same way as as the the previous Lila Star had been from the point of view of the cigarette. Yeah. Um, but uh, and I, I excitedly texted you afterwards just to say I knew that was Robbie before. <laughs> yeah, because that was one of the few stories that yeah the creative team wasn't sort of specified up front. So yes, it's yeah. it's always good when you can recognize someone's style. Uh, but yeah, I mean the the final word has to go to to Larry O'Neill and Jorge Fornes's tap tap tap. You know, this was a largely wordless entry that closes the book and to be honest achieves more emotion and depth than most comic runs in their entirety. It's uh, it's both a celebration of the recently departed Denny O'Neill but, but it's also a look at how he maybe wasn't as treated as well as he could be given the defining influence he had on those characters. You know, it's about the strains and responsibilities that come with working on characters such as these and about the joy and happiness and heartbreak along the way. I mean, this was... This was an absolutely stunning piece of work all around. Yeah, I mean, it's really hard to look past that last entry by uh, by Larry O'Neill and, and Jorge Fornes. It's yeah, I mean, you, you you've said it all. I mean, it's it's uh, it's uh, it's wordless. It's almost wordless, you know. And they use these, you know, these thought bubbles and speech or speech bubbles, you know, with images in them to convey what's what's going on. And uh, yeah, I mean, Denny O'Neill's influence in Green Arrow was incredible and still felt today. And it, it absolutely had me in tears, that story. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just brilliantly realized. And again, those speech bubbles are so interestingly done. They're all in different shapes. You know, if he's thinking about Superman, it's in the in the shape of Superman's shield. If it's a cowboy story, it's a cowboy hat. If it's, you know, an arrow, of course, it's, it's in the shape of an arrow. It's just really brilliantly done. But again, it doesn't shy away from those darker moments. You know, he obviously had battles with alcoholism, for example, and and then that kind of thing certainly was brought into both his and, and Neil Adams' runs on the characters. But yeah, the the reason I, I, I sort of, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but the reason I say that, you know, maybe he wasn't rewarded sort of with the recognition maybe as much as he should have been, or maybe even financially, is there's these two panels in a row where he's sitting watching TV with his wife and there's just a Batman symbol out from the TV, obviously intimating Batman 89. But then the next one, 
he's sitting on his own the house hasn't changed at all and yet from the tv there's batman there's superman there's wonder woman there's flash there's watchman you know all these properties are getting such great uh great attention but his life hasn't changed regardless of that and well, it, i mean i mean the, the, the sad change there is, is his wife's no longer with him yeah that's it as well you know she wasn't there to obviously to see that and and then of course he's hunched over a, a keyboard he's still working he's working on a, on a joker story there as well and and then yeah just that heartfelt ending i mean geez I'm tearing up just looking at it that last yeah, page know, is just yeah. as as he has his sort of final thoughts and his final thoughts sort of mirror his early thoughts as a kid listening to serials on the radio of cowboys and this is one of his last thoughts and yeah just an absolutely amazing piece of work and and again so much packed into eight pages that uh was just brilliantly done so yeah i mean green arrow 80th anniversary you know do yourself a favor pick up this issue you know it's a brilliant example of how good comics can be you know it's not bogged down in continuity or you you have to have prior knowledge it's just good old-fashioned superheroics and escapism and and a little bit of emotion in there as well just for for good measure so yeah great book i thought Mm -hmm. yeah fantastic very much very much enjoyed it very much enjoyed it um so moving on to my pick of the week uh, which is another one that we both read uh, and uh, swinging back towards image and swinging back to a little bit of uh, of neo-western we've got that texas blood number seven by chris condon and jacob phillips on pencils and pencils and colors and uh, here it is that texas blood is it's back with a new story arc and it seems like we're going to be exploring a historical event from chris condon's slightly left of center fictional Ambrose County, Texas, that uh, an event that haunts both the town and uh, our protagonist, Sheriff Joe Bob. Yeah, I mean, we, we always knew that we'd be diving back into Joe Bob's past, but this was a lot darker than I was expecting, and a great introduction as to why he is so world-weary by the time we meet him in Volume 1. Yeah, I mean, the story, which is called Eversol 1981, begins with Joe Bob, our, our seasoned sheriff, uh, and his wife, um, at home and there's there's clearly discontent uh, with Joe Bob uh, he ends up venting to a priest about a gruesome time in his life and a, a formative experience in his past and the story then jumps back 40 years um, to the scene of a crime clearly in 1981 where a decapitated rancher is found alongside a dead boy and several hooded men shot dead and the, the local law surmised that the boy met a a terrible fate searching for his missing sister and then you've got a, a private detective named harlan eversall stepping in and arriving on the scene and informing uh joe bob and his his uh, superior that their texas county has been infected by a, a deadly cult yeah i mean i think the the first volume of that texas blood you know it was undoubtedly fantastic but it, it seemed it seemed to me after reading this issue that maybe it was a simpler more straightforward tale in comparison to what Condon and Phillips are attempting here. There are so many layers to the first issue of this New York. Yeah, and you know, when 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 searching for a for a comparison, which you don't necessarily need, my feelings in the book have crystallized around uh, true detective or the first season at least, with regard to the tone and the direction and 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 also I guess overall with regard to the book, the compilation like structure that is certainly evident in the first the first two arcs. 
Yeah, I think that's not an unfair comparison at all. It, it definitely has True Detective Season 1 vibes. And if it continues along the lines of quality of Issue 7, there's no reason it can't be as highly regarded as, as True Detective Season 1. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's a book around at the moment that has more genuine, authentic characters. Um, Chris Condon is definitely a, you know, his his noir style is definitely a slow burner. And it's allowed him to show these characters and their their domestic and their professional situations, you know, defining their relationships through dialogue and, you know, in particular, uh, Joe Bob and his wife. And I'm, I'm stoked to see Joe Bob's origin story, which has been hinted at since since issue one, you know, the, the darkness of it or, or whatever mysterious thing happened, which I believe involves his brother. Yeah, it's just it's just brilliantly paced this issue as well. You know, there's there's loads of great wordless scenes. There's like a there's eight pages almost in a row just in the center of the book, which are almost wordless. You know, you've you've just got the odd Joe Bob reaction to things and and files and so forth, and of course a couple of wells because you need a couple of wells. <laughs> but it, it it shows um Chris Condon's faith in in Jacob Phillips' art to portray where the characters' mindsets are at. I mean, that scene where he's just out having a a cigarette, you know, thinking of thinking of the case and he's sitting out in his porch and then he, he sort of has a vision of someone across the road um, and then as you say goes in to look at the case a bit more and you know you can see the years of pain etched on his face especially when he sees the photo of the dead kid mm-hmm. and you know the glasses come off he pinches the eyes it's it's just really brilliant storytelling I think it is and, and all the while it's like a car crash in slow motion or a or a dark storm rolling in towards us from the horizon and all beautifully, almost photographically illustrated and colored by, by Jacob Phillips. I mean, this is, this is a book not to be missed by any stretch of the imagination. And they're a duo who are already adding to, to a genre that has, you know, that has been good to them. And they're leading the way in the reinvention of the, the neo Western noir genre. And, that's despite the relative earliness of, of, of their day, if you know what I mean. And I mean, I don't feel too uncomfortable talking about Condon and Phillips alongside Brubaker and Phillips. Yeah, definitely have to give us our reckless That Texas Blood crossover, I think. <laughs> uh, I really like the extra material as well at the back, the news reports. And uh, again, that is just great. I mean, this is this is you in a nutshell. You love your world building stuff. Mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. it's 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 newspaper reports from the day it's it's letters from the private investigator we were uh, told about you know history lessons on you know th- these guys have put a lot of effort into building this world and it's just like a slightly darker more heightened version of our own reality but it's just such a great book i mean when i read this issue i read this at like half 12 at night i can't remember i was up late for some reason and i i sat at my my dining room table reading it and as soon as I finished it, I, I follow and um, Chris Condon and Jacob Phillips. They have a Patreon and I pay like £5 a month or something. Just my way of supporting them because they were yeah. good, good enough to be in our podcast ages ago. Just great guys and, and a big belief in the story. And they did an original art drop and I actually managed to buy one of the pages from this. Oh, oh yes. Oh, and it's a gorgeous page as well. It has a young Joe Bob in it with that glorious mustache and all. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, In With The Framers at the moment. It is a thing of beauty, but yeah, just great, great book. The first trade is, is of course, available to get caught up, but as it states very clearly on the front cover as well, new story arc. I, I think you could jump straight into this. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it, mm-hmm. it, you, you're more than you know familiarized with the characters and so forth enough that you'll you'll get the journey they're going on. But that's not to say that first arc should be missed because it was it was awesome as well. Oh, definitely not. Or or the second arc. I mean, you'll you'll just you know overall the depth of Ambrose County and what's been described there, the the depth of the relationships. You know, uh, yeah, just get the whole thing. Don't don't uh, don't stuff yourself. Get the whole thing. <laughs> Yeah, so that is that Texas Blood number seven and an excellent pick to uh, to finish off this week's review. So we'll finish off as we always do and that is with a quick look at some of the titles that we're looking forward to most for the next new comic book day. Uh, we'll, as ever, we'll pick three titles out and these are the ones we're looking forward to most. So first up for me, unsurprisingly, uh, is Batman 110. So this is... Part 5 of the current storyline, this is James Tinney the 4th on writing duties and Jorge Jimenez on art. And I am just digging this Batman series. This is um, going to focus on the fight between Peacekeeper 1 and Batman. It's all about showing how Batman's going to have to essentially, you know, learn how to deal with this new this new threat. It's all about Simon Sane trying to pressurize Mayor Nakano into getting the magistrate program going and, and all the threads are basically starting to come together at future states so batman 110 is definitely one to look forward to for this new comic book day speaking of james tinney in the fourth uh this week we'll also see the release of the nice house on the lake number two so tinney in writing and alvaro martinez bueno on art and after the life-changing events of the previous issue and holy crap what a first issue it was <laughs> uh the guests at the nice house in the lake must decide their next step but there's not exactly perfect agreement about the situation who among them is ready to walk out the door and who is content to simply float uh one thing to note here as well is for wednesday the 14th of july releases i've ordered in a ton of second print number ones because you do not want to not be on this book issue one was exceptional issue two i'm sure we'll live up to those same standards absolutely agree and then my final pick this week is a title that I've I've been trying to show as much love as possible throughout the pod in the last few months, and that is Carmen. Uh, it's issue five of five, so this is going to be the wrap up issue for Game March's dreamy sojourn into the afterlife. And again, I'll be I'll be pushing this title as much as I can, especially once it hits trade, because this is fantastic work. So. Batman 110, Nice House in the Lake number two, and Carmen number five. And what about yourself, Keith? For me, uh, it is going to be no surprise that I am super excited about the first issue of uh, Masters of the Universe Revelation, the prequel, the comic book prequel, um, which is due out um, uh, on the next new comic book day. And following a vicious Orlax attack on his father, King Randor, He-Man learns the creature is linked to the origin of the Sword of Power. To save Randor and put an end to the chaos, He-Man embarks on an epic journey that pits him against his longtime foes, Skeletor and Evil Inn, and sees Tila take the reins of a powerful legacy. It is the official prequel to the upcoming Netflix show released later this month. Story is by Kevin Smith and Rob David, with writer Tim Sheridan of uh, our, uh, our Teen Titans Academy fame and uh, artist Mindy Lee. So, very much looking forward to that. Um, it's actually a, a week of number one picks for me, actually. Um, 7th of July, uh, Ordinary Gods number one from, uh, I believe it's Image, um, by Kyle Higgins, who's currently doing wonderful work on Radiant Black, uh, Yana Tropper and Felipe uh, Watanabe. And uh, we've got chapter one as the word turns slash flip of a coin. The luminary, the prodigy, the brute, the trickster, the innovator, 
five gods from a realm beyond our own, leaders in the war of immortals, at least they were before they were trapped, sent to a planet made into a prison, forced into an endless cycle of human death and reincarnation. Christopher is 22. He's got two loving parents and a 12-year-old sister. He works at a paint store. He's in therapy. He's one of the five, which means in order to save everyone he cares about, Christopher will have to reconnect with his past lives and do the unthinkable, become a god again. For fans of the old guard and god country comes the extra-length first issue of a century-spanning action epic from writer Kyle Higgins, reading in black, and artist Philippe Watanabe of The Flash. So looking forward to that. That sounds right up my street. And my last number one is uh, from the Marvel Milieu, uh, X-Men number one by Jerry Duggan, uh, Pepe Larraz, and of course guided by the able hand of Jonathan Hickman. We have Fearless chapter one. The X-Men are fearless. The heroes of Krakoa are here to save the planet. Things might be complicated between the nation of Krakoa and the rest of the world, but the, to the X-Men things are simple. You do what's right. You protect those who need protecting and you save the world we all share. Cyclops, Marvel Girl, Sunfire, Rogue, Wolverine, Sink and Polaris are the chosen champions of mutant kind and they will not shrink from any battle for their home planet. Writer Jerry Duggan from Marauders, Deadpool, Uncanny Avengers and the recent planet-sized X-Men reteams with superstar uh, artist Pepe Larraz, House of X, X of Swords, planet-sized X-Men to chart the course of the X-Men in a world of the reign of X. So looking forward to that one as well and a lovely... A lovely wraparound cover there um, as well by, uh, I think, popular as. Yeah, I think after the events of Planet Size X-Men, we're all looking forward to X-Men number one. So we will. I am looking forward to that one as well. So that is going to do it for us this week. So that was our uh, guide through the releases from the 30th of June and also what to look forward to coming on the 7th of July. So... Uh, a, a word of thanks as always to my cohort Keith uh, thank you for taking the time during your sojourn down to County Meath to uh, sit and talk some comics with me not at all my absolute pleasure um, I don't think I'll be making it up for a new comic book day uh, tomorrow so it might be Friday or Saturday before I get a chance to to pick up my pills, but I've got plenty of reading to do before then, so worry not, good sir. Oh, I shall not. I know, you, I know you're I know you always surrounded by comic books in one way or another, so I, I, I didn't <laughs> foresee that being a problem. But uh, yeah, that's going to do it for us this week. Thank you guys for listening as always, and we'll look forward to catching you down the road. So I've been Alan Taylor, and this has been Keith Miller. You can find Alan in store at Coffee and Heroes and on Twitter where Alan is at Coffee and Heroes 1 and I'm a Scannison 00. Coffee and Heroes is a local comic book shop, coffee shop and community hub in Northern Ireland based at Smithfield Market in the centre of Belfast. You can find Coffee and Heroes on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram or email us at coffeeandheroes at hotmail.com. Make sure to check out our YouTube channel as well. The Coffee and Heroes podcast is available on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts and through all good podcast platforms. Please like and subscribe and leave a review so more people can find us. And until next time, happy reading and hope to see you in store.